Again, we'll be in Isaiah chapter 3 and 4 this morning. So it's going to be a, a quite a bunch of, uh, quite a, a bulk of text here. We'll, tr- we'll get through it the best that we can. And um, instead of reading everything up front, which is what we typically do, um, because we have so much, we're going to take, take time to, to read each portion as we come, across, as we come um, through it. Um, together this morning as we're coming through our lesson. So if you don't have a Bible, then we want to make sure you get one. There's some over here by the sound booth, and if you don't own a Bible, then use that and keep it and take it home with you. That's our gift to you. So as Pastor Lou mentioned last week, or pointed out last week about our text, um, chapters 2 through 4, we're in 3 and 4 this morning, but 2 through 4 together is one single collection and on either side of that is a glorious depiction of the messianic kingdom or the, the kingdom of God. Um, is that the millennial reign? That's, uh, that's up for debate. We'll look at that a little bit later on um, this morning. But um, we, we, what we do know is that these passages are on either side a welcome glimpse into the future reality um, of, of God's kingdom. And between them we see now this progressive proclamation of God's judgment on the nation of Israel, specifically Jerusalem and Judah. Um, remember that being the southern kingdom. Uh, the kingdom has been split um, during Isaiah's day, so, um, and he lives during that, that time where the nation is divided. And we're going to see that there's this reoccurring theme throughout this portion, this bulk of text, um, chapters 2 through 4, and that is this, and to, to quote Pastor Lou, that is, quote, trust in the world and all that it offers and become proud and forsake the Lord, or... Humble yourself, as Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he may exalt you. So, the nation of Israel at the time was inflated with pride. And pride is ultimately an attack upon God's rightful rule over his created order. Right? In their pride, the southern kingdom of, of, of Judah, with its capital in Jerusalem, had forsaken God and they had exalted themselves. Having been attracted to the cultures uh, and the riches of foreign nations, they allied themselves with, with other foreign nations. And although it brought them economic prosperity, Jerusalem had also adopted their cultural practices, in, in including their religious practices as well. And they, they had... Uh, instead of rather than evangelizing the nations as God had set them up to do, his, his people in, in, in Jerusalem to do, they were instead caught up with the nations and they had abandoned, abandoned their God and their obligations to their covenant God, the one true God, Yahweh, and they instead were worshiping idols made out of different, uh, different materials, whether it's wood, as we see, or, or in, in, in silver and gold. And... That, in a sense, isn't that the epitome of pride, right? That, that, that we're all guilty of, that rather than worshiping the one true God, we will fashion gods for ourselves, right? To suit our own self-interests. We'll make them look and act the way that we want them to. We'll program them the way that we want to. And, and we'll have a God on our own terms, right? But as we see this morning, pride will inevitably invite God's judgment. God will not will not stand by as he watches his people that openly defy him and, and defy his laws that he gave to them for their own good and for his glory. So there's, there's going to be a day of reckoning, a day of judgment, and the day of the Lord is coming when, when all pride will be met with God's fierce retribution. At the end, God will be highly exalted. 
right? And, and, and he will be worshiped by all peoples. And after God describes in this, or Isaiah, as God, through the prophet Isaiah, describes this day of cataclysmic uh, judgment that's going to come upon his people, that will inevitably de- deflate their pride, it will reorient their worship back to him. He says at the end of chapter 2, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? And that's kind of a transition verse from chapter 2 to chapter 3, and it's a call, essentially it's a call to repentance. God's telling him, don't put your esteem, don't put your adulation, your hope, your dependence on people. Return instead to me, the, the people maker, and then you're going to avoid the judgment. And this verse is, is a clear allusion to Genesis chapter 2 when, when God be, uh, made man, he formed man he, out of the, the dust of the ground, and then he himself breathed breath into his nostrils, the breath of life, and, and that breath can just as easily be taken away. But as we see this morning, Isaiah's prophetic words is going to unfortunately fall on deaf ears, right? And, and so God's going to judge his people. But this judgment is, is not an abandonment of his people, we should keep in mind. God's not going to abandon his people. Instead, he's, he's, we're going to learn this morning that God brings his people through the fires of judgment in order to prepare them for a peaceful future with him. And that's, that's what our text is about this morning. Again, it's large, but we're going to look at it in, in sections, um, in three different sections this morning. So we're going to look at it uh, first at the, these, this um, gutless leaders in, in verses 1 through 15. Then we'll look at some egotistical socialites in 16 through 4.1. And then lastly, we'll look at the glorious branch in uh, chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. So let's first look at verses 1 through 15 in chapter 3. So I'm going to go ahead and read those verses for us this morning. It says, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms, And I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, every one his fellow, and every one his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder, and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother, and those in the the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our leader. And this heap of ruins shall be your rule. And that day he will speak out, I will not be a ruler, a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled, and Judah has fallen, because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of of their deeds. But woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him. For what his hands have dealt with, out shall be done with him. My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard, the spoil of the poor is in your house. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, 
declares the Lord of hosts. So we see there that this chapter opens with this declaration of God's sovereign power. He's still in complete control of what's all going on, and he sees what's going on among his people, and he's going to decisively act to correct what he sees happening. The Lord of hosts, as we look back, this is one of the titles that we've already seen. It's, it's, it's a, a reference to his, his, his sovereign power. He's the, the all-powerful warrior God, right? And he's going to judge his people by removing support and by removing supply. He's going to damage the very cornerstone society that Israel has depending upon for their source of security and stability. Now, supply and support here in the Hebrew are actually the same word. It's, it's the same words used two times right next to each other. And, and one is in the masculine form and one is in the female form. And what that's meant to convey is that um, he's removing support of every kind. God's taking out every kind of support that you can think of. So he's essentially kicking out the staff that they're balancing their lives upon. That's also what the word means. It's, it's, a, it's a staff. And, is that, and Isaiah then after this begins listing all those, all of those the, the, the dependencies that they're putting all their hope and their faith in. He starts first with life sustenance by, by talking about bread and talking about water here. And this is probably indicating that there's going to be a, a famine that's coming. Um, and it's going to be uh, across the entire land. But as we see in Genesis, even famines somehow can, can be controlled or, or they, they can at least be... Um, some, we, we can find our way throughout those with good leadership. If you look back at how in Genesis we saw Joseph, right? He was, he was put over the, over the people of Egypt and he was able to uh, gather all the supplies they needed for a seven-year famine. But what we see is that this is a, a great illustration of how good leadership is just as vital to a people and society as food and water, Right? God's taking away from Jerusalem all the leadership along with the food and supplies. And Isaiah goes on to describe each of these different like Jenga pieces, as it were, that he's going he's to pull, pull, pull away and, and the structure is going to collapse upon itself. Political influence, military power, economic stability, religious leaders, all of these are being removed. And to their shame, he even lists some illegitimate the types of, of leaders that have grown in influence like diviners and skillful ma- uh, magicians and expert charmers. And so if we were to try to equate that to, to today in our situation, it would be like all of a sudden all the political heads at the federal, state, county level, municipal, m- municipal level would all just break down. Right? We would see a complete breakdown of industry and food production Military, police, fire rescue, emergency services, infrastructure management, all gone. Right? Everything that we depend upon will become at best dysfunctional or at worst it's just gone completely. And that's how God is going to judge Jerusalem and Judah as we see here in this passage this morning. And in this in their place, in this void of leadership, God is going to appoint boys, it says here, and infants that will judge the people, that will rule over the people, I say, in his judgment. In other words, he's going to put the most incompetent ones at the top. And the Hebrew word actually for infants here 
in verse 4 can actually be translated as uh, caprice or capricious. You've probably heard of people being capricious, meaning that, they, that they're kind of um, uh, ruled, their, their decisions are all based on um, what, they, what their mood is, what, whatever their whim is at the moment. So God's going to put leaders in place over his people that are irresponsible and reckless. right? And instead of relying on God's law and on the word of the Lord, as we see in verse 3, chapter 2, they were supposed to do, they're ruled instead, and they rule based on passions and desires. And then when they abandon their responsibility to protect and promote social order, Society is, is essentially turned on its head. And we see chaos ensue here in verse 5. Right? The people will oppress one another, and every one of his fellows in, in, in will oppress his fellow and his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder, and the despised to the honorable. So oppression becomes now the norm. Violence breaks out everywhere, and as people are, are struggling to just come to some form of stability and they're going to try to do it on their own terms because there's nobody who's leading or guiding them. And there's no longer respect for elders. Those who would, they normally would turn to for wisdom are all being abandoned and, and, and those who had experience or wisdom aren't being sought after and all the upstanding and, and moral people are being persecuted. Things it says here, things will even get so bad that even the most insignificant or arbitrary characteristic or trait of the person is enough to put them in leadership. That's enough of a leadership qualification. As we see in verses 6 and 7 here. And de- we see this, the, the, this, this desperation that's going on. Uh, a man is going to go after his brother and say, hey, you have a cloak. You're good enough to be a leader over this society. right? In essence, you look the part. You fit the description. You dress well enough. You look the part. Why don't you lead us? And he, he says, no, he declines. You know, and not surprisingly, he doesn't want to take over this heap of ruins. No one's here rising to the occasion. There's this void of leadership, and no one's there to take responsibility. Kind of reminds me of this bumper sticker that I saw that um, somebody I used to work with said. It says, losing faith in humanity one person at a time. Right? That's essentially what's happening. There, there's no faith in people because no one's rising to, to the occasion. There's no God-honoring people. Leadership has essentially become a joke, a you know, punchline. But it's not to God. Right? God establishes leadership, including leadership in his church for the good of his people. And he's responsible for all the things that we depend upon. The things that we are depending upon come from his gracious hand. All support and supply are gifts from him that are good for human flourishing by God's common grace to all people, but also to his people, the church, and all for his glory. As Paul states in Acts chapter 17, 28, in him we live and move and have our being. And we learn that best, that in him we live and have our being and stability and purpose and meaning and identity when all the false securities are pulled out from under us. Because then we're forced to acknowledge and we're forced to strengthen our trust in God himself rather than the things that we've been instead depending on. So the question for all of us this morning, and it's a theme from last chapter as well, but what are we leaning on for our 
security and for stability? Are you leaning on a human leader that's inevitably, inevitably going to uh, lead you in the wrong direction or is going to disappoint you at least? Or, or are you relying on the sovereign God who establishes good leadership? Do you value godly leadership in the church? So you got one extreme to the other extreme, right? Where, where are you overvaluing leaders and, and placing people on a pedestal rather than God? And the other flip side is, um, are you not putting any value in leadership? Has God given you leadership skills, but you've instead avoided stepping up, avoided using those for his glory and uh, being responsible with the gifts and talents the Lord has given you? We can ask these questions, not just of us ourselves individually, but also corporately as a, as a church, right? Are we at King's Chapel finding our identity and stability in Christ? Is God's word our authority? And does church leadership take God's word seriously? Right? No church is perfect. You know, every church has its flaws, including here. But are we committed to, to Christ and to his mission to, to make disciples? Yeah, I believe we are, but I we pray that we continue to do that. Now we look at verses 8 and 9, and we see here now there's this transition from these words of judgment into the indictment that God has, like the reason why he's judging Jerusalem and Judah. And it says here that their words and conduct are testifying against them. They're openly defying God to his face. God's glorious presence here that's used in this verse here is literally the eyes of his glory. So God's watchful eyes. So they've reached the point in their depravity where they're just openly defying him. They've seared their consciences. They, they have no, no guilt at all. They don't even try to hide what they're doing, their sinful practices. They're doing it in secret. Instead, they're, they're parading it. They're celebrating it. So that the city of Jerusalem, who's supposed to be a city of righteousness, a city of, of peace, which is what the word means, Jerusalem itself means city of peace, it's become spiritually bankrupt, as spiritually bankrupt as Sodom. And God's just given them what they want. Right? They, they've said here, invited the evil upon themselves, and now this evil that they've invited is now running rampant. Their society is, is rife with violence and corruption from the top down. And before, when the leaders were just described as clueless and maybe uneducated, inexperienced, maybe incompetent, now we see that they are actually per, you know, perpetrating violence themselves. So before it was happening under their gaze, now it's, they're actively involved in oppressing the people. And they're drawing them away from God. They're drawing away from His Word and His holy ways. And so we see here that pride is first and foremost against God. We've, we've learned that, but we also see that pride is also hate for other people who are made in God's image. Rather than loving neighbor as God has commanded us to do, this is a hate for neighbor. And we see this, this rage, this, this outrage in God's voice as he's pulling them back to himself and, and, and trying to bring them to their senses, but we also see that there's grief in his voice. He calls them my people here twice. My people Infants are their oppressors and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you. They've swallowed up the course of your paths. But interestingly, right in the middle here, 
in verse 10, there's some consolation that God gives for his faithful people who are living in the midst of all that's going on, right? The righteous are still living here among all the evil. Not everybody has been corrupted. And even though this prideful parade is, is going on uh, of wickedness before God's eyes, the faithful at the same time have not escaped God's notice. That he, he sees their deeds, he sees their words, and he reminds them that they are going to be rewarded. It's a wonderful thing, right, to, to know that, that God's anger is not just this blind fury, but he still sees clearly his people living faithfully and, and still longing for him in the midst of all the surrounding evil that they're living in. Reminds me of, of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He, Paul is just, in, this, in that text, says, his letter describing Christ's triumph over sin and death. We just sang that, where, oh death, where is your sting? And, and, and he's talking about Christ, his triumph on the cross is our triumph as well for his people. And he says, and then he adds this at the end of that statement. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God is working out his plans right, to bring sweeping judgment through Jerusalem and Judah, but those who are faithful will survive. They'll eventually experience the, the reward of their faithfulness, even if it doesn't happen in this life. And that's the consolation for us as well today, isn't it not? Right? When we're overwhelmed by the sin that's going on around us, we should remember that God has not abandoned his church. Right? He continues to build this church. He continues to strengthen us, his church, by giving us the spirit to live for his glory. And our labors for the kingdom are effective. Right? Souls are being saved as we faithfully live on mission to demonstrate and declare the gospel. Amen? So ultimately, God's people will survive this journey of God's judgment that's, that's happening upon all people. But the unrepentant will receive the full vent of God's wrath while his church will, will still be stabilized through it. And, and just like God's wrath is not arbitrary, it's based in his holiness, we see here that it's also not unhinged. Right? It's deliberate. It's righteous. In verses 13 through 15, we see this vignette like, of a cosmic courtroom. Like God, the righteous judge, is confronting these leaders. He's bringing them before himself in his courtroom and he indicts them for mistreating his people. They've devoured the vineyard. This is a metaphor for Israel. They, they, they've gone through and they've, they've taken all that's in the vineyard for themselves and left nothing behind for anyone else. They've stolen from the poor and they've made themselves rich on the backs of other people, their, feather, their, their fellow uh, um, Jews. And that's what's meant by these, these, these words that, he's, that, that they're crushing and they're grinding the poor. It reminds, it reminds me of, that, of, of that, um, uh, the giant's rhyme in Jack and the Beanstalk, right? Fee-fi-fo-fum, I smell the blood of an Englishman. Be he alive or be he dead, I'll grind his bones to make my bread. It's essentially what the wicked rulers are doing. That they're, they're abusing their powers and their influence over the people and working them as slaves, and they're stealing their livelihoods. This from people who were, what, 
that were saved out of slavery, right? And now they're perpetrating it on their own people. They, they fatten themselves with the people's hard-earned profits. And because of his holiness and of his love for his people, the Lord God of hosts, right? Title that began this section, right? The Lord God of hosts at the beginning of, of chapter three. And now he's ending it by using this, the same title, the Lord God of hosts, is pronouncing that these leaders that are standing before him in his courtroom are guilty. But we see here that the, the judgment doesn't end there. Right? We, it, it continues to go on. The righteous leaders are not the only ones who will experience God's righteous indignation for their pride. In, in chapter 3, verses 16 through 4-1, we're introduced to another group of people. We're introduced to these group of socialite women. And that brings us to our second point here. In verses, well, let's read verses 16 through 4-1 word of the Lord here. The Lord says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion. The Lord will lay bare their secret parts. And that day the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets, the signet rings and the nose rings, the festive robes, the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors and the linens, garments, the turbans and the veils. Instead of perfume, there'll be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. And then verse 1, chapter 4. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. So these women here are called the daughters of Zion and we are immediately told what God has against them. It's their haughtiness. Once again, it's pride. Their pride is on full display the way that they carry themselves as we see first and then in the way that they are clothing themselves. That their necks are held high like having their nose above everyone else. And it says that they're are seductively glancing. They're, they're dressing provocatively. They're, they're glancing with, with flirtatious, seductive glances. And they, it says here that they, they, they almost, they, they walk with short, like staccato-like steps and, the, and ringing as they go. And it's probably due to the anklets that they're wearing that, that kept them from walking at a normal gait. Instead, they, they had to walk um, with short steps and it would, uh, it would ring as they, as they went along. And, and it also had the benefit for them by uh, announcing their presence, bringing attention to themselves. It's obvious that they're, that they're trying to draw attention to themselves on purpose by their expensive wardrobe, their opulent jewelry. And it's likely that they received all this wealth from the oppression of the people. that they were, They're probably married to these leaders uh, that, that are giving them all these gifts. But the judgment they will suffer is 
not necessarily because of their clothing, their couture, but it's because of their pride. Because underneath all the bling, right, their hearts are, are teeming with the self, the same self-exalting, God-defying uh, pride as this despicable leaders that we just saw in verses 1 through 15. Right? They have no care for the oppressed, just like the leaders don't. But instead, they, they care more about the accumulation of these things and, 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 and dressing themselves off and showing themselves to the people. But what they don't realize that they're, is that they're drawing more attention to themselves than they even intended to. Stealing glory from the Lord and, and wrapping it around themselves instead of attracting the attention of God himself. And then we see here in a more graphically and a more graphic depiction of God's judgment that he is going to humble his people. He's going to wipe away their vanity by, by taking away the objects which they had accumulated and they have attached to themselves as part of their self-worth. And first he's going to, says here, he's going to inflict them with a skin condition. He's going to, he's going to, leaving them scabs on their heads and their, bald, their heads bald, which was a sign of disgrace for women in the day not to have any, and to have any hair. And he's, he's going to make it so that everybody can see. And he's going to leave them utterly naked and destitute by removing all their expensive things right, from, from head to toe. And he lists them all down the line. And he's going to instead leave them with sackcloth and, and a rope as a belt. What would normally, uh, these are things that would normally uh, be suited for a gre- person who's grieving, a woman who's grieving, that they would clothe themselves in this, in this way with sackcloth and ashes. And then we see in verse 24, again, that, that this, he's, he's giving them not just the sackcloth, but this rope around their, around their waist. Instead, it is also maybe an indication of the coming exile when they will be bound, right, years and years later. It's an allusion to that captivity that's coming in the, f- in the future as a means of God's judgment. But in verses 25 and 26, we see this, there's this interesting, subtle shift in language, right? The daughters of Zion is replaced by your. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle and her gates shall lament and mourn. Although I believe, I think it's, it would be proper to first understand that Isaiah is talking about, definitely about a specific people. Literally, that there were women in the day that were dressing this way, acting this way. And I think just by giving the mere description of all the little details about what they were wearing shows that indicates that this is a, a literal people he's referring to but more than that I, I think that he's using this group of people the the socialite women as a way of pronouncing judgment on all people that this is this is what's going on throughout the entirety of the nation of israel he's targeting this larger audience and this, this, this one specific group of the population is pointing to the guilt of the whole nation of Israel. Like all of Jerusalem and all of Judah are in view here. And the behavior of these women is essentially a, a depiction of the spirit of the age throughout the nation. The women of Israel eventually, as he switches language from these women as, as being um, daughters of Zion, then to your men shall fall by the sword, that he's saying that now the woman Israel will watch as her mighty men are slaughtered in war. And they're going to be left devastated 
and they're going to be left weeping at the gates of the city. And then in verse 4, we get a glimpse at just what kind of misery is going to follow all this judgment, that there will be just a few men left to care for society. There's not, there's not enough of them to care for, for society and, and to care for the surviving women that are there. Right? At the height of their pride, right, these women had no problem attracting attention, and all of a sudden we see contrast that with what's happening now, that they're turned, it's, everything's turned on its head. The tides have turned, right? Pride has been replaced with desperation, and, and, and now, instead of attracting attention by the way they're living, they're actually pleading for attention. They're so desperate to find a, a man that, that seven women are going after one man. And they don't mind even sharing this man among all seven of them, just as long as they can, they can, have, um, they can have this legal connection with them, legal marriage. They don't even mind also giving up what would be required for the man um, who's taking in uh, a wife in Exodus chapter 21, verse 10, that he was responsible for providing food and clothing. They're saying, no, we'll provide for ourselves even. Just, just as long as we can be called by your name, we can have your last name, we can be married to you. And, and so in doing that, they, they, they could remove the stigma and the disgrace that was associated at the time with being unmarried and with, without ha- with having no children. And family, this, this shows the lengths that God will go to eradicate pride from his people, does it not, right? The prophecies would come to fulfillment, as we'll see as we go throughout the course of, of the study, um, as the Assyrians evade, but ultimately when the Babylonians take them into captivity, this is going to come 100 years after, after uh, Isaiah his death, and, and that's outlined in, in 2 Kings chapter, chapter 25. And it's going to be devastating for, for, the, for the people of God here, for Israel. But we should remember that God does this not just out of fury, but out of love for his people. Not to destroy them, but to, to, to purge and to purify them, to restore them to himself. Not long ago, we studied the letters to the seven churches in Revelation. Do you remember what Jesus said to the church in Laodicea? Revelation chapter three. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so you may be rich and white garments so you may clothe yourselves and, be, and, and the, the, clothe the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and, and to salve and anoint your eyes so you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and Repent. Behold, I stand at the door locked. If, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and be with him. Same is true today for us as well, right? God will remove everything that we substitute for him so that we will repent of our pride and find our security, find our love, find our joy in him. And God does that through the gracious gift of his son, Jesus Christ, Amen. And that's going to bring us to our last point this morning as we see this change, as, as we leave this language uh, of judgment and go now into glory in chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. And that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. 
And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of dollars of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and a smoke and a shining of flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day and from heat and, from, and for a refuge and shelter from the storm and rain. So this is the shortest of the sections, but it's also the sweetest because it speaks about the salvation of God's people. It, it opens up with this phrase, repeated phrase, in that day. We've seen it earlier in chapter 2, verse 12, and in chapter two twenty, and then even here in chapter 3 on that day. But this time it's not a day of judgment. Right? Judgment has passed. It's, and now we see that this consummation of God's promises to sanctify, to purify, and to protect his people. It's a day that the faith will have longed for. And it has finally appeared. And the coming of the beautiful and glorious branch of the Lord has now dawned. And, and notice that the, that the word Lord here is in all caps. And that's indicating the, the covenant name of God, Yahweh. And what he's doing is he's displaying his, his faithful, steadfast love for his people. For his people Israel. But he's bringing them through the fires of judgment to the paradise of his blessed presence. And like I mentioned a moment ago, this is fulfilled in the person, in the work of Jesus Christ. Now commentators here are split, should tell you about the meaning of the word branch of the Lord here. Uh, some believe that's a literal reference to the land of Jerusalem, right? And that during this, this post-judgment time, there will be abundant and beautiful um, vegetation throughout all the nation. So the, there will be this, this, this re- restoration of, of, of the created order here. However, at the same time, most commentators, even though they're split, I think most of them, as as I was reading this this week and studying, believe that branch of the Lord is actually a reference, though, to Jesus Christ, right? And and that's who I, I agree with them there because, and the reason is that the strength of their case is built by, as we see later on here, um, in in, in Isaiah, but also in the other prophets, in, in Jeremiah and Zechariah, that this, this word branch is used there as messianic titles, Another good reason why we could see that this is referring to Christ is that the rest of the passage is pointing not to, not to uh, physical restoration, but all of it is pointing to, to spiritual flourishing and restoration. Right? Not physical, but spiritual. So this self-exalting pride that had once been characterized by the people has been replaced now with a pride in their exalted Savior. We see now Jesus' beauty is, is put on display in this restored Jerusalem. It's Christ who's responsible for, for purifying his people. So you can see there's no indication of any other leaders being, being now brought forward, a, a reestablishment of, of faithful or godly leaders because those human leaders are no longer necessary because the branch of the Lord, Jesus Christ, is now ruling in righteousness. And now look at verses three and four real quick here. It says Jesus is the one that's responsible for making his people holy. As we saw earlier, it was not anything that they did on their own. Right? It was nothing that they could do on their own. It's not even something that they, that they themselves even necessarily wanted for themselves. But Christ purifies them. 
And he does it through the cleansing power of his, of his perfectly lived life, right? And his atoning death on the cross. He washed them clean of their bloodstains by bloodying himself instead on the cross. And he dies in their place. And then we see right here in verse, verse three as well, again, he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who, who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. The survivors of the judgment made it through and they were refined by God's purifying power, not because of themselves, but because of the sovereign grace of God. Those who, who survived and re- remained faithful did so only by the grace of God, not because they earned it themselves or they somehow kept themselves unstained by sin, but because that Christ, because God himself had appointed them for salvation. He had predestined them for salvation from before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise and glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness of his grace. Those who belong to God, he prepares, we see, to live with him in his glorious presence without fear because they have been cleansed from their sins that once separated them from himself. They have been washed by the blood of Christ and he will remove the vile vomit and the the putrid excrement of sin with his cleansing power with with his cleansing Christ eventually we will fully realize the removal of sin and and guilt looks like it we will be holy as he is holy the one big question here that's left in this passage is what is this day referring to it's obvious it hasn't been fulfilled it didn't it wasn't fulfilled for Israel yet when will it take place And that's where the debate continues to rage, right? Premillennialists believe, premillennialists believe the text along with his counterpart in chapter two we saw earlier, verses one through five, refers to the millennial reign of Christ. That both of these bookends are referring to that same event. They posit that after a time of intense tribulation on the earth, Christ will return to the earth and he will reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years That's what millennial means, right? A thousand years. And it will be a long but temporary time of peace until the final day of judgment takes place. The feet of Satan takes place and the new heavens and new earth will be established. So that's what they believe, the premillennialists. Now, amillennialists, on the other hand, believe that the millennial reign of Christ is a literal event that's taking place now in heaven between Christ's ascension and his second coming. And again, the millennium is is a literal event, but it's not a literal span of 1,000 years. So this passage is not referring to, they would say, the millennial reign, but it's of the final day of the Lord. When God will judge all the nations, he will purify his bride, the church. He will cast Satan to the lake of fire, creates a new heaven and new earth, and that's where he will dwell with his beloved bride, the church, forever. And that includes the remnant of Israel, right? All Jewish believers, as well as people who believe in the gospel from all over the globe, 
who have repented of their sins and they've trusted Christ. So, so what we see here is that there's two different ways of, of looking at this, at least, maybe more. But I think that we all agree that no matter how we interpret this passage, right, all Christians believe that Jesus is the object of our praise and worship, amen? Right, and that we will be with him forever. And on that day when he does make all things right, when judgment has all passed and he returns, God will create this cocoon, or to use Isaiah's words, he'll create this canopy of comfort, right, and protection over his people that we read about in, this, in these verses. The God who once manifested his presence to Israel in the past as a cloud by day and a fire by night during Israel's wilderness wanderings, he will finally touch down permanently with his people, right? His Shekinah glory will be with them forever and he will blanket his people in love and protection. And that's God's ultimate goal, right? It's to live at peace with his people where they are free from fear, free from the fear of his judgment, but also free from any kind of external threat of sin. Every last foe will be conquered and we will finally enjoy refuge in Christ. But in closing, this, this hope is only for those who have placed their faith in Christ. Right? The paradise of Christ's presence is, is only a paradise for those who have been washed by his blood. Right? Their judgment has already taken place on Christ when he bore their sins on the cross in Calvary. But the unrepentant, we'll see, will incur God's wrath for eternity. And so the question for all of us, the, the most important question that any of us can ask of ourselves is have we repented of sin? Have we trusted in Christ? Right? Do you exalt Christ himself or are you still being ruled by pride and arrogance? As the band comes forward, we're going to move into communion this morning. So Maybe you are a follower of Christ, but you're struggling with pride. Maybe you're even experiencing turbulence in your life because you have refused to relinquish the things that you've been substituting for Christ. And so I would, I would, I would plea that you would turn from your, from your sin and, 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 to, and to find your confidence, your refuge in Christ. Um, can I ask somebody to actually bring me <laughs> one of those communion packets? I, oh, thanks, sweetie. <laughs> If you're a follower of Christ this morning, make sure you have this packet. Um, we're going to have take communion together this morning, but I ask you first to, to go ahead and, and remove the, the top layer of that um, for the wafer. Before we eat the bread, let's just take a moment as we've now listened to this text, we, we heard the Holy Spirit in our hearts drawing us to, to attention to our sin. Let's take a moment here just to, between you and your between you and the Lord, just take a moment of silence and just pray and, and, and confess and repentance. And
On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body. I was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together, remembering that Jesus took our place on the cross with his body. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and saying, this is the cup of the new covenant that's forged in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Let's drink this together and remember Christ's blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Now, let's celebrate together as, uh, as we look to Christ, the one who purchased our salvation from sin, Satan, and death as we, as we worship in response.